And that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand is that um, is that we have this perception that we have to be perfect or we are perfect, right? And yeah. and I'll tell you, in 23 years of policing, man, I've I've been in people's houses that you wouldn't expect to be in. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. yeah, um, you think that a lot of these people are perfect. Uh, and and I can walk into the center of the street in some million dollar homes and tick off all the houses that I've been in for some issue. But then I can take you to the hood or what we perceive as the hood. And I've yeah. never been in any of those homes, you know. Interesting. So we think that these people live perfect lives. And that's that's the whole thing with me, man, is like. I, I don't let people hold me in judgment, so to speak. Right. Yeah. There's times that you have right. to get feedback and there's times that people tell you, dude, you're messing up. Oh, OK, I get that. Right. But to think that someone's better than me um, yeah. morally, it's like, uh, you know, I don't I don't, yeah, I don't get it. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah, 100 percent. And I've been talking a lot lately about um, that idea, like the idea of reconciliation and restoration. Like, I mean, um if I, if, if people that I hang out with now knew all the things that I had done from 16 to 24 and only judged me by that, or only decided if we were going to be friends by that, we wouldn't be friends. Like, like there's, there's a whole chapter in my life that I look back on and just like, wow. And, and then I look at where we're at today, you know, I've been married 25 years I've, or been with my wife for 25 years. We got a beautiful family and you know we're breaking all sorts of generational right things and doing all these things it's like so i even look at like kids now you know i got a 14 year old some of the kids he rolls with and and it's like man i i just pray that (laughs) you could turn the corner because it it doesn't define them right like it's not who they are and i it's funny that you say that like you've been in those million dollar homes and 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 in those neighborhoods where we feel like, Oh, those guys all got their act together. But that's where you've had to go and do work and deal with people and, and over and over again. And, and in the hood is where they're like, I ain't got time for this mess. I'm just trying to rise above. (laughs) Right. Right. And that's the thing is that you just hope. And it took me a, a while to remember where I came from, so to speak, but, um, you just hope that these younger kids don't make mistakes that are so large that they can't recover from yeah. uh, because a vast majority of the time, man, there's kids that I used to chase around adults that I used to chase around um, as a younger police officer. And uh, you see them 10 or 15 years later and they're doing okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. you, you thank God that you didn't put them in a position or they didn't put themselves in a position in which they couldn't recover from. Yeah. Right. And uh, I remember I was talking to a buddy yesterday about this guy named Sean Ford. I used to stop, stop Sean Ford because I knew his license was suspended. And I used to just give him tickets day after day after day. Um, and I really wasn't helping Sean out. Sean, Sean naturally put himself in a position. No, I wouldn't say naturally, but he put himself in a position in which he didn't care, take care of his license. He didn't take care of insurance and, and all those other things. Um, but he was trying to go to work every day, right? Yeah. And so if you just meet Sean Ford where he's at and try and help that guy or just say, Sean, what are you doing, man? What do you need? 
in order to fix this, right? And, and it took me a while to recognize, like I did nothing for Sean. Luckily, he was just smart enough to not lose it. But, uh, and, and I, I don't know where he is today, but I hope that he was able to get it together. But I knew that I, I certainly didn't make it easier for him. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you just hope that over time, people will, will come to their senses and hopefully straighten out and get everything together because the, the people that you see at 22, they literally don't have the ability to think like a 35 year old or a 40 year old, you know what I mean? So they think yeah. about now, they think about what's going to make them happy now, but they don't think about the longer future. Um, yeah. And when you can accommodate for that or when you can recognize it, then, you know. Then yeah, you it's, it's interesting because I talked to, um, I talked to my teenagers and I talked to my now adult children's children about, you know, how hard it is in that space and that age group to think about, you might make a decision today that is going to alter the course of your life. And, and, and it may not be for the better right. because, you know, of the consequences of those decisions. And, you know, thankfully for me, I was able to, to overcome and move past some of those choices. And some of them took years to, mm-hmm. to resolve. Um, and it's hard for them because like you said, they're just thinking about like next week. Like, they're just right. like, you know, I just got to get through this class or the semester, or I just got to get to the next, you know, my next shift. And, you know, my, my oldest son, he had a real brush with some issues. He was, he was, you know, he was in a scenario where had it not gone the way it did, it could, it, it could have changed everything for him. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge wake up call for him. And he didn't do anything necessarily wrong it was just association and perception and all of those things and like i i'm confident that had had it been all brought to to you know if it all came to a head he would have came out okay but you know like my situation and i've talked about this before so i'm not i'm not breaking any news or anything but like you know when i got arrested when i was 19 it was in self-defense, but it involved a female. And that's all people heard was I beat up a girl. And it was like, no, I got my ass kicked and I had to stop it somehow. And in the course of stopping that, when the, by the time the cop showed up, it looked like I was holding her down. Yeah. And when I got arrested, it was, well, what are you arresting me for? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm bleeding. I'm, like I, it's clearly self-defense and they said we'll figure it out when we get <laughs> when we get down there and it was like yeah. uh okay but just the perception you know they roll up yeah. and here's a guy holding down a gr- and this is you know 30 years ago but it took it took years for me to like psychologically recover from like what is what happened there right and and that had had he ended up in a, in a in a situation that you know was a little bit different but it carried some of the same like cultural you know, implications. And, and I feel almost lucky for him that he experienced that at the age that he did. Right. Cause he was 16 and he was able to go, Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> this could yeah. really, yeah. I don't want any part of that. Yeah. I need to, cause he was still a minor right. and he was able to, he was able to, you know, 
be able to manage that situation. And it's crazy how it's crazy how those things people don't think about those things. It's kind of one of the reasons why I was really excited when you said you'd you you'd be willing to come on the podcast because you know we've not had a chance to really have any like in-depth conversations other than like some casual <laughs> some casual you know jabs on social media because we've got some mutual friends who who like to stir the pot oh and, yeah and uh you know a little bit about your background so you've been you've been in law enforcement for 23 years 23 right? years i just retired uh mid last month okay and so tell me a little bit about what you did as a law enforcement officer and then we'll kind of dive into the nuts and bolts of that because there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there when we talk about what sure. people see and how they act and and all that right so i started uh, got out of the army in 97 um right after high school i uh, joined the army went to uh some other places and then in um 97 got out 98 was hired uh here in henderson and like all officers you start off on the road did three years on the road. Um, I One of the things that I learned early on is how to get good at something. You know, I was an army medic in South America. Uh, and at age 18, we were doing real deal search and rescue, real deal medevac operations. Um, so I grew up really fast and, and learned to get good at uh, what I did. So when I came to the police department, man, I just dove right in. Um, did three years in patrol, then went to canine, became a patrol dog handler, um, a narcotics dog handler. And at the same time, when you're a patrol dog handler, you're a, um, SWAT dog handler. So did six years of patrol SWAT and, and, and dope handling and went back to the road, uh, for, two years, went to what's called problem solving, which is a, like a street crimes problem unit where you wear plain clothes. And, you know, if they have an issue with burglaries in a particular neighborhood, then you'll just set up in that neighborhood and, and wait for something to happen. Or if there's a particular type of crime spree, then they'll put, you know, a handful of plain clothes guys on it and you just figure it out, right? You, you figure out how to catch this guy. Did that for a year and then um, went back to the road. 2011, I was involved in an officer-involved shooting. And uh, it, it was a real experience. You know, senior guys had always talked to me about those things. And in Henderson, we didn't have a whole bunch of them, uh, but we did have a few. There was one maybe 30, 30 45 days earlier. Um, but I mean, you're talking every few years, you might have one. In the last few years, it's it's actually skyrocketed. And then uh, it was kind of eye-opening to see how the whole thing happened and how I performed. And, and you know, at that time, I was in my peak. Um, then went to uh, training after that, started training guys in officer survival, officer safety skills, firearms, use of force, things like that. And then um, got into the investigation side on the administrative side. So every time there's a use of force or there's a officer involved shooting in most agencies, there's two investigations that happen. One's the internal investigation, uh, which asks, did we do this correctly? What can we learn from it? Um, 
do we need to change our operations policies or any of those other things? Then there's the criminal investigation in which the investigation is conducted and turned over to the DA to decide what charges on either way are going to happen. Charges against the citizen, charges against the officers. Um, did that for six years, uh, traveled the country teaching it, uh, and then in 2018 came back to the road for my uh, last few years and just handled calls for service. And, you know, when my time came up, there was plenty of opportunity for me on the outside and, you know, I took it. So stepped away from 23 fairly exciting, medically ruinous, uh, unreasonably dangerous years. So 23 years. And so for people who may be listening and aren't familiar, Henderson, we're referring to like Henderson, Nevada, like outside yeah. Las Vegas. It used to be, I think when I grew up, it was a, it was a tiny little suburb. We used to call it Hooterville. And yeah. now it's like, Hendertucky. yeah, Hendertucky. Yeah. Now it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's probably as big as Las Vegas. And what, what I find really fascinating about that whole part of town is, you know, the jurisdictional boundaries of like Henderson and, and then metropolitan, which is covers, you know, a lot of the parts of the County. Um, but what I, you know, I got two sons of my own. And if one of them came to me and said, I think I want to go be a police officer. I feel like my inclination would be to do everything I could to convince them not to. And, and part of that comes from where we're at socially, just right. in, in, in all of that. And the other thing is my dad worked for Metro for Metro in Las Vegas, um, up until, I don't know, I'll say 75, 76. So quite a while ago. And I know that. Yeah, he's always talked about he's always talked about how it was uh, really, really cool. And it, like almost like not for not, not some people should do <laughs> like it was a lot of fun. And you got to be a special kind of person to not let it screw you up. Right. And, 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 you know, I love my dad and he and I have reconciled in a lot of ways, but he was definitely was not the kind of person that didn't bring that stuff home. Yeah. So like one of the things that comes to my mind is, is, you know, how have you managed to do those things and be involved in an officer involved shooting? We can dive into that if you want. Um, but just all the things that you've been involved in and seen and not like brought that stuff home because you got a family, you got a wife, you got kids, yeah. you got you know, you're, you're, a, you're a stand-up pillar in the community. And, and a lot of cats aren't able to do that for 20 some odd years and lose their minds. Well, and that's the, that's the sad thing about it, man, is that um, my wife was talking to a, uh, a colleague of hers at work and I don't talk a whole lot uh, to people. And, and he asked my wife, Hey, was he always like that? And she, and she said, no, he, he isn't like that. Uh, he wasn't always like that. And it, it most certainly takes a toll on you. You see the absolute darkest in people. Um, you've seen people's lives destroyed over things that um, just make no sense. Um, you know, I've been covered in a two-year-old's blood uh, trying to save him. And there's intersections that I can't drive through without remembering what happened there. Um, and it, it takes its toll on you, man. And, and every officer that you know, if he works in a municipal setting, he is not the same person who 
started. You know, the number one killer of cops other than medical reasons is suicide yeah. because it is, it is just not a happy job. Um, yeah. And then over time, I would say that most guys learn to deal with it. When I first started in the nineties, uh, a lot of guys who had been there and done it and, and weren't acting like everything was okay would tell you, Hey man, listen, you got to take care of you. You've got to keep your friends on the outside. You've got to keep your interest in all those other things because it's an exciting job, man. I'm telling you, there's, yeah. there's nothing like it. Um, that radio lights up and you're off to some adventure. Um, uh, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's, it's bad, but every day it's something. So when you talk about the chemical reaction that you get from it, the adrenaline, um, it's a fun job, but I mean, you will see the most hideous, heinous things that, that you could imagine and they change you. Um, but the thing is, is that these older guys would tell you, Hey man, listen, don't, don't give up your outside friends. Don't give up talking to your family about normal stuff. Um, don't give up your interest because it's how you keep perspective. And yeah. one of the things that, you know, I was explaining to some guys just before I left is caring in law enforcement is very dangerous. Um, caring will, will drive you insane, but caring is what makes you good at what you do. Um, and so like anything else, it's a skill. And unless you master that skill, it'll drive you crazy. You will see people's lives destroyed. You will stand in the blood of good people. Um, you will see people murdered for no reason. It's going to happen. How do you manage that? Yeah. Right. And so we spend a decent amount of time trying to tell these people, you know, trying to tell the, the younger generation, um, and like I said, my friends have seen some really horrific things in the last few years. And, uh, you know, you, you're almost scared for them having been through that journey. Uh, you know, yeah. you're scared for the new guys, but the reality is, is that, uh, we are much bigger into mental health these days in law enforcement than ever before. Like I said, in, in the nineties, they weren't into it the tail end of the nineties, when I got into it, people would pull you to the side and go, Hey man, how are you doing with that call? Or, um, you know, are, are you going to be okay? And then I started suffering some of these incidents, partners started suffering some of these incidents. And, uh, you know, you would go to your command, um, and say, Hey, I, I don't think this person's doing okay. You know, but the suicides I've had friends kill themselves, uh, the drinking, the pills, all those things, DUIs, affairs i've seen all of it um yeah. and it's all kind of people acting out and it's i mean it's not a good thing uh but i think that we're there's a whole area of study in law enforcement to help guys with this and it's just normal guys are coming into the academy these days and they're being told you are going to see these things they will be with you forever this is how you manage it ask for help learning to spot signs of help uh, the yeah. spot so, so they're normalizing getting help where it used to be like a sign of weakness it used to be i mean i like you know i know my, like talking to my own dad that like man you didn't you you just did what you were told and yeah. and, and 
and if there was an issue it was like you got to man up you gotta like you know don't be a pussy you gotta deal with it yeah no it's not that way anymore like like i almost wonder if there shouldn't be and I, i love your thoughts on this like term limits like you could do this job for five years 10 years or like in your story when you talk about going from like being on the road to working in this industry, this, this division or working in that division and switching almost like mandatory switching up the type of roles that you have so that there's like a period of, cause there are parts of law enforcement that are, that are more fun that you're not going to see, you know, like, I mean, I got a friend who's a nine one one operator and, and that's gotta be one of the hardest jobs, but she don't ever leave a desk. You don't ever leave a desk and you don't ever really get closure. Uh, So one of the things that I did after I started investigating shootings and things like that is um, I would go up and uh, to our dispatch center and I would debrief them, right? I would show them what the final investigation was and, and what actually happened because they're listening to these absolutely horrific events and then they just got to take the next call. Yeah. They have no idea. Yeah, no, no idea how it how it ends, yeah. and and when you can't reconcile things in your your mind is one of the ways that PTS is caused PTSD. So yeah. I would go up there, and, and it was eye opening to them, you know. So yeah, yeah, you know, it's there are term limits in some things. I had a friend who was one of the best in the country in like child entrapment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't think of what it's called, right? It's where, or luring, right? When yeah. people try and lure underage people. Um, and I remember talking with him. This is a happy dude, man. He's one of those guys. He's a tech wizard. He just loves what he does. And uh, run into him like, hey, man, how are you doing? He's like, man, I'm not doing good. And that's like a red flag. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, when someone tells you, man, they're not doing good. That's, and, and him and I weren't great friends, you know, we would pass each other. I love seeing him um, yeah. to the point that with all these things that he's dealing with, with child pornography and the luring and all that other stuff, um, you, it was just burning him out to yeah. the point that he was one of the best in the country and he just had to step away from it. And that's been the story of everyone that has, has done that type of thing. You know, I've had a friend who, who for years wanted to get into investigations and got into uh, sexual assault investigations and um, especially with kids and he only lasted there like a couple weeks because he just he couldn't do it you know yeah. and, and that's what a lot of people don't see they they think it's just the basics but it is just the graphic gory nature of, of yeah investigations yeah I mean I worked I worked for five years with a anti-trafficking organization and and had to do very similarly where I worked in different areas. I never, I was never exposed to like in the field, you know, rescue or things like that. But, you know, there's a lot of conversations about what's happening and there's a lot of things that, that I saw that, you know, and, and I knew very specifically because when I got involved, I had, I had children that were every age of the people we were talking about. And it was like, all I could see was my own kids. And it was like, yeah. You know, and I had had an opportunity to go do field work. And I was like, I don't know that I'm psychologically capable of that because a lot of that requires a little bit of undercover, a little bit of like acting, a little bit of, 
you know, playing a part. And I'm like, I can't play a part because I'm going to rip this dude's throat out. <laughs> like, I can't, yeah. I can't know that. And I don't have that skill set. And the guys that do, you know, it was interesting because in, in some of the work that we did, there would be people who weren't really well trained, who would sometimes get exposed to like the, the nuts and bolts of the operations. And they would almost be like offended because you have to like go and, and wine and dine with maybe somebody who's a trafficker yeah. or somebody who's a, a predator. And you're sitting there having steak and lobster with somebody who, who, you know, full well in the next couple of weeks, you're going to take down, but other people yeah. would look at that and go, why are we spending money like that? Why would, and it's like, look, this is what it takes. Like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta kind of do the dance a little bit. And I, I think to your point, like a lot of people really just don't have any clue what it takes to do the job that you do, but also to like to fight crime. And everybody thinks that it's very black and white. And it's like, there's good guys and there's bad guys and there's laws and there's laws that are broken. And it's like, it's really not. There's so much gray. There's so right. much, there's so much dynamics to it. And, you know, we've gotten into this place now. We got into this place now where it's like, everybody has an opinion about everything. And those opinions aren't, aren't, fluid they're right, they're not informed and they're not informed they're just uneducated um and 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 probably good good hearted right like we sure. all want to see people we all want to see people in good places and i know I'm, I'm definitely guilty of this and it's probably been over the course of the last three to five years that i've really had to start asking myself questions about what is happening what what is going on and and, and in doing that, what I've learned is that I know very, very little, and I probably understand even less. And so one of the things that drew me to, to, to having you on and talking is, is your, in, your involvement in sort of the investigate the shooting investigations and, and some of the things that you kind of have a different perspective on yeah. when it comes to, you know, Things like, you know, we'll just George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and all these publicized scenarios that are right. tragic. They end tragically. Um, and the public perception is very rarely what's the whole story. Right. It, it almost never is the entire story. Right. And so you think about how you learn of these things, you learn of them either via social media or the traditional media. Um, social media guys can get on there and, and post things uh, and, and add their two cents. And if you don't know any better and you don't have the facts, when you hear or see those things, um, especially psychologically, if you don't have any pre-existing information or knowledge of it, then you fall sway to that, right? And you see that all the time in elections where uh, uh, people will label their opponents something. Well, if you don't know any different about that opponent, then you just you just take what that person says at face value and and start to think ill of the other person, right? So, yeah. person posts on social media this shouldn't have happened, this was preventable, or any of those other things, and then people go, yeah, yeah, you know, and and every one of us do the same thing. Every one of us, I don't know if you want to call it hypocritical, but to a degree, we're we're all hypocritical about something, right? Because we just we don't know any better, um, but I, I've seen and I've been involved in a lot of investigations in which we're public, uh, we're national, and 
people would get on the news, first off, the traditional media, they're into making money, right? Yeah. And, and they make the money through the news. So when they have a headline that says, you know, a cop did this, um, and that gets you to click on their website or get you to tune in, they then can say, oh, we had 60,000 people on our, our page yeah. today or whatever the case is. That's how they make their money. And, and it's got to be sexy or people aren't going to click on it. That's, yep. you know, I used to sell t-shirts and I was a businessman and it's the same thing, right? A restaurant isn't going to do okay if it doesn't have nice imagery and branding and all those. And it's the same yeah. thing with the media. Um, the problem is, is that very rarely is it the truth. You know, I work on cases privately now as an expert witness. And I can tell you that I spend 40 to 60 hours in this case. And that's after everything is assembled and put together, right? There's no way the media can do that in two minutes. Yeah. Um, and so they give you the sexy parts of it. And every time it is a tragedy on both sides, every, every person that law enforcement is involved in a shooting with is someone's brother or, or father. Um, and it, it is a tragedy. So when you hear about George Floyd, and I don't care what you think about George Floyd, it's someone's brother, it's someone's father, you know, someone's son. And, and, and sometimes in law enforcement, I think the perception is that we don't care about those things. Um, and that's certainly not the truth. You know, I can tell you that cops are a lot different now than they were, you know, 10 years ago, let yeah. alone 20 years ago. Uh, but there's facts in every one of these things and those facts matter. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on, man, I got so many questions. Um, <laughs> cause there's, there's so much, there's so much there. Right. And, and some of it is like the humanity of it. Like I, I know that I am guilty of seeing a clip and I'll be honest with you. I don't watch any of those videos that come out sure. about any sort of any of that. I don't want to see it because maybe because my dad was a cop and I know better I just don't and I I mean I worked this is a poor comparison but I ran nightclub security for two years and did not see an iota of what you and a lot of a lot of other law enforcement officers have seen but when you talk about seeing the worst of people like I had to quit doing that job because I realized how much I was coming to dislike people right because at two o'clock in the morning, I'm dragging people out in their own vomit. Just going, you're a disgusting human being. Night after night. Night after night. Every day. Or, or watching guys assault women and having to get and step into that. And then having people tell me, no, 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 he bought a table. Don't throw him out. And it's like, well, what the, what are we talking right. about? Right. What are we doing? And, and like my own morality and all of that. And that's, I mean, that's in a, that's in a, that's in a nightclub. That's not like people dying. That's not like people going to prison for the rest of it. So like, I get what you say. And I'm, I just look at that through that lens and go, man, if I couldn't handle that for two years, I don't know how anybody can do what you've done for 20 something years. And the flip side is I've been guilty of sharing a, a post or posting something on social media going, this is bullshit. And then sure out of an emotional response without mm -hmm. really thinking it through and it's it's honestly like guys like you 
and a few other friends that I have that are in law enforcement or that, that have been brave enough to kind of step into those conversations because they can be really ugly. Never ending. Yeah. And saying like, hey, did you consider this? Did you consider this? And you've always done a really good job, in my opinion, of being factual, not making it personal and just saying, hey, here are some things to consider. Not even saying, hey, I'm right. You're wrong. Just right. saying, hey, here are some things I think you might want to consider. And And truthfully, for me, like those sorts of interactions have gotten me to try to look at things through both lenses and say, okay, well, this is what I saw, or this is what I've heard. And, you know, facts are somebody's dead, but I don't know all the rest of the details. Right. And I'm wondering how, like, I guess one of the questions that comes to mind is like, how do you, outside of modeling that behavior, because I think that's one way that you can shift it, but like, do are you having private conversations with people and saying, Hey, let me walk you through a couple things. Those that maybe your semen are at, like, how do you navigate that without going, listen, you dumb shit. <laughs> you don't know. Right. Well, you know, is the thing is, is as a police officer, there's a few realities that I have to face that most other people don't have to face. Right. I have to face the reality that every year, 60,000 police officers are assaulted. Right. Every year, 3,000 police officers have a gun pulled on them or are shot at. Every year, between 280 and 360 police officers are actually shot. Um, and, and around 70 or 80 are, are murdered every year, right? And we can't tell you where that's going to be. We can't tell you when it's going to happen. Um, and so for me, and for every police officer on the road, the reality is, is that we're going to put our hands on people, right? Just like you mentioned in the nightclub, it's going to happen, right? Yeah. Um, but we balance that with people have rights, right? And, and those rights are of the utmost and they're, they're paramount. And it takes experienced police officers to know when the person is in the right and sometimes when the officer is, is in the right, because we always have to follow the constitution in this country. Um, but over time, you start to learn that there's, there's instances that are just dangerous. Traffic stops are dangerous, um, but traffic stops are necessary. People are going to be shot. Police officers are going to be shot doing traffic stops. So let's try and do this as, as safely as we can. Right. But when you start to recognize the indicators of danger, you have to do something about it. Right. So normally a, a citizen won't have will not have experienced what those things are. But a police officer will still see things that uh, a Joe Blow won't. And it's that way in any industry. Right. Uh, yeah. A couple of months ago, I went to um, uh, Walgreens up the road and I put uh, some Gatorade on the counter and some Lysol on the counter and lady goes oh someone at your house has the flu and I'm shocked right and I'm going yeah <laughs> you know I, I had to buy some rock from a rock place and I drove across the scale the guy goes okay well, we got your weight and I, I went to the yard got loaded up they lost my weight when I drove back across the scale they said hey man we forgot your first weight so pull over we're going to have our rock guy look at it and um, and then if you come back, we'll give you the difference unloaded. Okay, cool. So I pull over and the guy looks at it and he goes, oh, that's probably about 3,459 pounds. And I'm thinking, bullshit, dude, whatever, 
right? And so I go and unload the rock and I drive back and it's 3,960 pounds. And I go, dude, how, yeah. how did you know that? He goes, I've loaded rock every day of my life for 20 years. Yeah, he, goes, he just knows. Oh, he just knows, okay. you know? So there's things that a police officer sees in some of these videos and some of these incidents uh, in which they know that it's normal behavior or it's, it's something that a suspect does when they start to resist. Um, but naturally, the facts matter, yeah. right? Because you can have something that looks completely reasonable on video, but once you learn the facts, it's not reasonable, right? Yeah. The officer should not have done that. Um, and it works the other way around. Yeah, I think there's so much context loss because we see 10 second, 20 second, even two minute clips. But if you don't have everything from start to finish, then and, and you know, like we talked earlier, like you can make a decision in, the, in a split second that changes the course of your life. In, in a split second of a five minute interaction, I have to imagine that a person could have said or done something that triggered in you a response that maybe isn't caught on video or maybe you've been in that space before and so without knowing like your entire history their entire history how many times they've interacted what's going on the entire the entirety of the interaction you know it's almost impossible i would think to make a determination on like what's right or wrong sure right? like I well one of the things that you do uh, see as a police officer is that your job is to go out and you, you contact people over and over and over again, right? And things fall into norms. And so you know in a call for service that most people act this way, right? They will say things in a particular manner. Uh, they'll do things in a particular manner. They're, they'll act a certain way because of anger or frustration or whatever the case is. Uh, but then you start to see behavior in the extremes outside of that norm. And that's what the red flag is. And the longer you do the job, the more you know what's normal and what's not normal, right? So you can take a one-year guy um, and he's not going to have that same level of yeah. acuity as to what's normal and not normal. But then you can take a 20 year, 23 year guy and go, mm, no, that's bullshit. Right. We got a call a couple of years ago uh, to one of the casinos where a uh, guy calls 911 and says, I was in the elevator and I just cashed out a bunch of uh, chips and, you know, five Asian guys robbed me. Okay. I don't even need to show up to that call to know that is complete and total bullshit. Right. Nonetheless, we still show up to that call. Right? right. And we go through it and it turned out to be bull. Right. Because right. that's just not the way things happen. Right. But likewise, you do start to develop this level of um, understanding in which if I get a call from a certain business, it's probably a crime spree. If they call and say, hey, someone just stole something. It's probably a crime spree. They get a call from another business. It's probably transient. But if it's, if it's part of a crime spree, they're probably not from our jurisdiction, which means mm. they're leaving that store in a particular route, right? Because that's the way that people come in and out of the city. So as soon as our guys start hearing that type of call, they start hitting certain streets because they know vast majority of the time, those people are going yeah. out a particular way and we end up so, catching. So there's this huge level of experience that eliminates some of the challenges that you guys face, right? Like 
I think with experience, you can eliminate some of the, that room for error. So how do you get the first year guy, the same level of experience as a 10 year guy that, that, and, and sort of fast track his ability to make fewer mistakes. Cause the hard part is like police officers are human right? and humans make mistakes, but we hold them to such a higher standard that like, because unfortunately when they make mistakes, people die on occasion, right. like, you know, or the constitution like, gets violated or, you know, yeah, the yeah. There's civil, there's all these different things. Right. And, and, I mean, we're not a graceful society to begin with. We don't give a lot of grace to people to begin with. Right. And then you put, you know, a police officer in this situation that really seems untenable to begin with. And then they make a human error. And, and like, how, what do you think is a way that we can, because I've heard some people say like, well, if you just comply, there won't be a problem. And I'm like, well, I don't love that idea because it's not always just about compliance it's also like respecting one another right and working together it's like what do you feel like is a way that we can sort of eliminate some of that or how do we educate the public to give a little bit of like i don't know i don't i don't know how we navigate that it seems sure. like just such a so there's a lot of thing. ways that we can train police officers and some agencies are better um, first off, you want to retain your experience, which is a big problem with a lot of agencies right now. Uh, they're, they're just bleeding experience for a lot of reasons, sometimes internal, sometimes it's just society. Um, and so I was my agency's instructor on what's called instructor development. Um, I was responsible for teaching people how to teach and also how to learn, how to develop expertise. That was my job. Um, and the agency knew I was retiring, but really didn't do anything about it. And so when I walked out that door, I took every bit of experience with me. Now, I, I'm naturally a teacher and I taught everything that I could teach the guys and I left my phone number with them and, and told them, but um, over and over again, law enforcement is just losing their people, right? Again, for, for a wide variety of reasons. But there's a lot of things that you can do to teach individuals in, in what's called naturalistic environments. This is not a lab. This is the real world. How do you do it, right? And it's, it's yeah. the same thing on how do you master a skill? So there's a lot of talk about, you know, hairdressers get more training than police officers. Mm, to a degree, right? They do spend a little bit more time in the academy or, you know, in hair and barber school yeah. or whatever you call it, beauty school. Um, but police officers do what's called direct learning. You show up at the academy and there's class after class after class on traffic stops, domestic battery, all these other things. They're done in the classroom. They're not done in the real world, right? Yeah. And so the, the learning is minimal to a degree. And there's in the human teaching world, or the teaching world, there's what's called transference or transference of skill. How much of what I taught you in that class actually transfers to yeah. the real what world. What you retain? Right. right. And, and can you do it? So yeah. the academy is a lot of theory with little to no hands-on. But then once you get out of the academy, that's where you do the direct learning. You're actually interacting with angry, drunk, violent human beings. 
or um, <laughs> people who have beaten, been beaten or whatever the case is. And that's where you do the bulk of your learning. So in law enforcement, a vast majority of what you learn comes with time, right? When you're presented with this call and you reflect on it. But the other thing that you can do um, is your senior guys can show up on calls of the junior guys and say, hey, man, listen, this, these are the things that you think about. 20 years ago, if you were suicidal and you were in your house and you said, I'm going to kill myself and there's no one else in your house, we would not leave your house. Man, we'd blow your stuff open and, and the SWAT team would come in just to help you. All right. Uh, we'd destroy your house. And, and it got to the point where a lot of people were like, hey, why are we doing that? Right. Why a vast majority of people who threaten suicide don't commit suicide. Right. So you have to go to your your junior people and go, hey, listen, what are we going to gain by yanking this person out of the car, by kicking open their door, um, by putting ourselves in a dangerous position to help a potentially suicidal person who doesn't want our help? You know, so you host or you put scenarios on in training in which you sit down with your crews and you say hey listen this is what's what the call is what would you do right and then you let a person make that decision and then you go okay these are what the experts would do right it's called a shadow box exercise where okay. you're presented with a scenario and that person then um they understand what the rules of thumb are would call the the heuristics these are the more than likely, if you do this, you'll be okay. You do this, you probably won't be okay. Yeah. They understand what those are. And then you present them with a scenario. And then you say, okay, this is what experienced people would do. And then they learn from that, right? Modeling out on the streets, showing up and you got a person that's just upset. And the cop shows up, the senior cop goes, hey, man, I get it. Yeah, I, I understand what we're doing here. Um and, you know, we're just, we're going to end it right here. And, you know, just please be mindful of how you're driving or what you're doing or, you know, whatever the case is. Yeah. And when they see senior officers do that, when they train in these scenarios, when they understand um, why you do or don't do something, you know, no cop shows up and says, hey, I'm going to do a really bad job today. Right. Right. Um, but. I remember having this conversation about vehicle pursuits. I've been involved in vehicle pursuits. They're, they're not fun because you recognize that people are out of their mind uh, when yeah. they're fleeing from you. And I've seen, um, I've seen cops seriously injured. I've seen people killed. Um, I'm not a fan of them, right? And so you get involved in a vehicle pursuit, you capture the person, and very rarely was the vehicle pursuit worth what the ending was you know what i mean you're not capturing yeah. a murderer suspect a yeah. murder suspect and so a lot of times when you're done with it you're just kind of like yeah that i mean that was pretty dangerous and not necessary and so i remember uh, our agency was involved in a pursuit one day and, and um i had a brand new squad of people and i'm telling them yeah man listen this right here we should not be involved in for these particular reasons this is why it's dangerous and this is a, a group of young cops who are very interested in, and they're listening to me. They're listening to the radio and a couple 
seconds after we got done with the discussion, the suspect vehicle ends up hitting a, a pedestrian. Um, and, and that was a very distinct moment in their career in which all the things that I had just talked about 30 seconds prior just came to a head, you know? And so now these guys are seeing, oh, this is real, right? This yeah. isn't something that's, that's cool. And, and so there's a lot of things that you can do. Remember, we're still cops. We, we're still there to enforce the law. Um, but there are ways to be smart about it. And when you can share your experiences and you can put them in the same circumstance in which they have to make that decision, yeah, then a lot of those guys will get it. Policing is completely different than it was 20 years ago. Yeah. Do you think that that it's, I mean, I, I think I know the answer to this, but improving and like, do you feel like it's headed in a direction that some of these scenarios that we see all, more often than not, you know, are going to be able to come to a resolution or do you think that like even with all the good work law enforcement agencies might be doing to go in the right direction the media is going in the opposite direction so it's almost like a wash well it out on the street you don't change the world as a cop but you do change one person's life every call that you go on you know what i mean yeah so yeah. And that's the thing. A lot of guys sign up. They want to be super cops. They want to change everything about the world and, and fix the world. And the reality is, is that I, I can't, right? But I can tell that one heroin addict, hey, man, you, you can beat this. You can get over yeah. this. Um, or that you're proud of. Um, you can take that one child molester off the streets, um, take him to jail and get him to confess. Um, and you do those things one person at a time. So to yeah. that one citizen or to that one victim or to that one suspect, you can always make that difference. But the reality is, is that in this sea of cops, you know, most people, when they think of law enforcement, there's 17,000 police departments or law enforcement agencies in the United States. Most people can think of maybe 10 as having done something negative there's 1 million cops in the united states yeah but it's defined by derek chauvin so on one hand the the individual citizen you're doing good by them or you're failing them but to the popular media and to the thing that catches our consciousness every day there's always going to be that one derek Chauvin, right yeah. there's always going to be that one thing and and we can't control that Right. I wouldn't say we can't control that. What happened in St. Paul or Minneapolis, you know, those are those are horrible things. Um, and could we have made a difference in that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Every yeah. cop in America is sitting there watching Derek Chauvin going, what the hell are you doing? There's no. Yeah. Need for it. So I'm right? curious. And, and normally I wouldn't ask a question like this because it would be conjecture, but you work in this space as a law enforcement officer, as an expert witness, as someone who's watched all this, and I know you haven't investigated this in a way that maybe you would investigate something that was that was within your jurisdiction, sure. but the officers that were with Derek Chauvin 
at that time have been found guilty of, yeah. and I don't know exactly what, but it essentially leads to you didn't protect the person yeah. who was. How do you feel about that? Like, what what are your thoughts around that? So, it it's actually very complex, and we've seen this. Um, what's called duty to intervene. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, it hasn't popped up. It's always been there. Right. Um, but you've seen it taken more seriously in places that haven't previously. Right. Um, and it's one of the things that I, I started teaching on in probably 2012 or 2013. And, um, you can't not get involved when you see something like that. So, I understand on one side, the dynamic, those guys, two of those guys were there. It was like their first day on their own or something like that. And Derek Chauvin is, is clearly a person who, uh, I don't know, has to be in control. And some of the guys right off the bat, which is, is kind of unique. The guy says, Hey, I'm concerned about positional asphyxia or whatever he says. And, And Derek Chauvin just blows him off. Um, I, I don't think that would happen in a lot of places. I don't think yeah. a lot of, of newer cops would tolerate that. And I don't think most cops would keep uh, George Floyd in the position that he was in. It served no purpose, right? Um, and it's just one of those things. As a guy who, who was security in nightclubs, you understand there's, there's BS that you just have to deal with, right? Yeah. And so when you have a guy like George Floyd, who's in this level of delirium and he says he can't breathe and I teach excited delirium and I'll tell him, Hey, listen, whether the guy can breathe or not breathe, sit him up. The vast majority of people breathe better sitting up, but if you have to wrestle him and he tries to get up or do something stupid in a couple minutes or 30 seconds, because a lot of these guys that are, are like that, they go up and they come back down. They go up and they come back down. So every few minutes you're you're rolling with these guys or doing something. Then so be it, right? Do yeah. it, right? And and so when you're looking at George Floyd and you're looking at Derek Chauvin, every cop in the United States is going, "What are you doing? Why are you keeping him like that?" Right now, there's some on the human error side. There's a few things that often happen uh, in these instances in which you're more, more focused on the call or whatever's going on. You're not paying attention to the, the, the suspect. You've told them to calm down for the last two or three minutes. You've been wrestling with them. You think they're calming down when in fact, they're not calming down. They're dying. Yeah. Right? I, I couldn't necessarily apply that to George Floyd, but so we teach our guys, we run them through scenarios through scenarios in which they're expected to intervene. Right. Uh, there's classes that we host several times a year where we talk about the duty to intervene. It's written into the law. It's always been the law in in our circuit, our federal circuit. Um, And they're expected to do it. It's causing more people to not want to get involved in what they think is squirrely stuff. So you're finding people that are being reported for unreasonable force that's not unreasonable. uh, Mm. But... Um, it's better to swing the pendulum the other way. Like, let me go ahead and say this is unreasonable because I don't want to be told that I didn't intervene when I should have. And so you have some people that won't use force at all. 
right? Yeah. They're just not going to use force and they think that's a virtue. And that's, I mean, it's, it's great if you don't have to use force. Yeah. It's, it's great until it isn't. Touch it. Right. But then all of a sudden you find yourself in a position in which you don't put your foot down, so to speak. You don't yeah. stop them or you don't confront that person to now they're in a position in which they're so emboldened that um, they're, yeah. they're going to act out. And that's what you don't. Well, and it's sort of muscle memory too. Like if you don't use, if you don't use the skill, then you almost forget how to use the skill. So it's like, there's, and I get it. Like there's a balance there, right? Like there's a sure. balance between, and that's where training comes in and that's where all of these things come in. And you, um, you don't want to use force. So you, you don't want to use force to keep your skills tight. <laughs> yeah, I no, mean? I get that. I get that. That's why I like. But you do want to know that it's a reality of municipal police work. And a lot of these sheriff's guys, they work on their own. Um, people don't have to like the cops. And, and that's one thing that you, you do have to train younger officers on. Okay, when it when a citizen says fuck off to a cop, that's the constitution in action. Yeah. Whether we like it or not. All right. But people aren't going to be enamored by your presence. And and you know, sometimes cops drive me crazy. I don't want anything yeah. to do with them. You know, I don't I've been gone from law enforcement for almost a month now and and I don't miss it. I've had my fun. Cool. People aren't going to love cops. It's nothing personal, but they do have the right to not like cops. So don't yeah. take offense to it, right? You're going yeah. to deal with individuals who are having a really bad day and they're going to take it out on you. You know, if you've, if you've been married then that's just normal stuff. Right? Yeah. It's just, you just used to it. You just used to it, right? <laughs> just used so to it. let me ask you about like the accountability piece then. So, you know, cops are human. Cops are going to do things that they shouldn't. I'm going to have a bad day. I'm going to fight with my wife. I'm going to get in my patrol car. I'm going to go hit the street first guy that runs his mouth is going to maybe get the the not best of me <laughs> and and you know while the public may not be able to offer grace or be able to understand that which is kind of where i feel the public is at what what's a reasonable amount of accountability in or because there's a lot from my understanding and you know it's always just a lot of it's from what the media says or what I'm able to to research, but there's a lot of pushback in like, or fear. And I'm wondering if it's real or if it's just um, sensationalized for media's purposes in law enforcement agencies, not wanting layers of accountability, whether it's a citizen commission, whether it's body cameras, whether it's internal affairs, whether it's because I imagine it gets kind of hard when every decision you're making is being micromanaged, right? Like right. that's any team, that's any organization. Micromanagement's a, a, a death sentence. So how, like, where do you land and where do you, what do you think in your experience? Like, how do you guys manage that? Like what's a good, like best practices for real accountability? Cause due to intervene, you know, I'm sure it works often and we only hear about the times it doesn't. But, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we hold the human side of policing accountable without micromanaging them and, and, and causing the fear where they're not going to use use of force. So they're not going to, they're not going to do their job because they're afraid of getting in trouble. Sure. Well, 
a lot of agencies that, uh, for instance, body cameras, a lot of agencies don't want to go to body cameras for a variety of reasons. A lot of officers don't want body cameras uh, because they feel it's it's going to be unfairly used against them. And sometimes it is. Yeah. Right. Uh, but a vast majority of the time. They're doing the right thing. Right. Uh, they're doing the right thing for the right purpose. Um, I can't tell you how many times as a supervisor, I'm summoned to a traffic stop and the guy says, hey, this officer stopped me because I'm black. You go, OK, why? Why do you think that? Or, you know, however it is oh, well, because of this, man, I wasn't speeding. And then you you disconnect the laptop from the car and show them the video of them blowing through the light or, or you know, speeding or whatever the case is. and. Um, 95% of the time it exonerates the officer. And so over time, people get it and they want it. Officers want it. You know what I mean? But when it comes to, for instance, citizen review uh, commissions or citizen oversight, it adds a layer of complexity and scrutiny that, that oftentimes isn't warranted. And when it's there, it's there, right? And so I'll give you an example. Um, consulted with a very large agency in the law or the uh, Los Angeles area, and uh, reviewed an incident in which it was completely reasonable. What the officer did was completely reasonable. The guy's running around the neighborhood with a gun, right? Uh, but because of uh, politics, the citizen commission found it unreasonable, right? Met the policy, clearly dangerous. But because of politics, the, the commission found it unreasonable. And you can't change those things, yeah. right? Um, and so oftentimes the, the level of scrutiny just simply isn't warranted. And people are going to pick out what they want to anyway. Here's another example. In this last legislature, they passed a law in the state of Nevada um, about if an officer is involved in a shooting, an incident that results in what could be considered serious bodily injury to a citizen, then they have to give a urine sample. Okay, so if you think about that, an officer maybe is involved in a shooting, that officer has to be drug tested. Eh, that makes sense, I suppose. But then you ask the legislator, why did, where did that come from, right? Because I follow the industry. I've, I read about nearly every shooting that occurs in the United States every day. There's one instance I can think of back East years ago in which uh, an officer did a blood test or urine test after an, an officer involved shooting that he came up hot for cocaine that had nothing to do with the reasonableness of the shoot, but nonetheless. Yeah. So when I asked uh, her, hey, what is this? Where's this law come from? They're like, no, oh, we don't know. Well, hang on. You, you wrote it into the law. Why? Why do you think that that's necessary? They're like, yeah, we have no idea. Couldn't tell me who it came from. Couldn't tell me why it's necessary. But now it's it's a part of the law. So when someone tries to murder a police officer, the police officer now has to go give urine for no reason at all to prove what. Right. <laughs> you know, and so it's it's things like that that are driving people crazy these days. Everyone's for accountability. Most police departments have internal affairs. Uh, divisions. Those internal affairs divisions review body cameras. Supervisors on the street are responsible for reviewing body cameras uh, just randomly. 
uh, every use of force in like in our jurisdiction, Las Vegas, I assume North Las Vegas, every jurisdiction that is involved in a use of force incident, the supervisor comes to the scene, the citizens are asked to stay there, fill out paperwork, ask questions, do any of those things. Um, because we want to show that we're right. And then it goes through a whole system of review internally within the agency. And so most cops have no problem with accountability. Um, but it, at what point does reality kick in? You know, at what point do we just go, hey, enough is enough? And, and, yeah. and I don't know what the answer is to that. Do you think it would be a benefit I struggle with, I mean, I struggle with anything that's done in mass, right? Like I have a heart, like I will say, and, and this might get controversial, but like, I, I have a hard time when anything starts to become a party or a political organization or a, a, a mantra of some sort. It's like black lives matter a thousand percent. The lives of black people matter, right. not necessarily all for the organization. I 100% want to and and I do respect and support law enforcement. I'm not a huge fan of like back the blue because it's sure. it's like they can it just takes away the grayness of all of the stuff of of like yes we want to support our law enforcement officers and the the idea of like just back the blue is almost for me and I think for a lot of people, it's eliminating the accountability, right? It's like just saying, we're going to back them no matter what. And I wonder if you know, in a lot I of these areas. It was, it, was, it was that cut and dry, right? In the field that I work in now doing uh, consulting on the outside, um, not every cop does the right thing. Yeah. But a vast majority of them do. Yeah. Right? And I think. I think that's accurate. And I'm curious if it wouldn't help to shift the narrative if law enforcement agencies were more vocal about that, or if politicians or, you know what I'm saying? Like if, sure. if, cause I mean, I do a podcast primarily directed at men about being accountable, being vulnerable, dealing with all the things we've got to deal with without, you know, and, and partially because I'm, you know, I'm a Christian white male in this society. And in a lot of ways, I'm seen as the, the root of the problem, you know, because we don't look at the individual, we look at the label or we look at the group, right? right. And I'll be the first person to tell you, I got a lot of issues with Christians. I got a lot of issues sure. with men. Right. I got Christians a lot of issues are the first with... person to send you to hell, you know? You know, exactly. <laughs> like I got a ton of issues with all of those labels. But I think if more Christians said, yes, Christianity has made some ginormous errors in our history, instead of going, well, no, we're great. We're, we're awesome. We're the best. Like, it's this tribalism, right? Like, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just back my organization no matter what. And I was having this conversation with my daughter the other day because she's getting ready to do some traveling. And, you know, she was a little concerned about traveling to the South and, and some of the places she was thinking about going. And I was like, look, I'm like you're you're putting stereotypes of people in the plural on the people individuals you're going to meet because 
I've never met a person that I don't really, I can't sit and have dinner with and get along with, even if we're on completely opposite ends of the spectrum. But you put me in a room with 15 of those same people and I'm going to be super uncomfortable. Right. Right. Like, you know what I'm saying? So sure. like, I've had lunch with, with members, uh, attorneys from the ACLU and they are very reasonable people. Yeah. Right. And, and sometimes it's their job to say unreasonable things. All right. But it, the reality is, is that it, it takes both sides. Most people would find this as a shock, but I am a card carrying member of the ACLU. Right. Because I believe in civil liberties. I believe in people's rights. Um, but when we you're right, when we start to clump people together, then it, it's easy to hate a group. Right. But it's very tough to hate an individual. Yeah. Right? Black lives matter. Very few people will argue with the fact that black lives matter right but there's a practical side to the organization that causes problems right that not a lot of people believe with black lives matter itself doesn't believe in the nuclear family yeah okay <laughs> you know what i mean i don't support that yeah right yeah there's and and that, so like i'm i guess i'm just curious is like is it the politics of it that prevents law enforcement from being more vocal about yes we have challenges yes we're working on them or is that the media who isn't presenting that to the public because it's not sexy and it's not part of the narrative that they want to right because we've got to have this us versus them so they got something to sell right and i just did an interview it's going to air uh probably this friday um with or whenever this is it's going to the next interview that goes up is with a with a Dave Carvassier, who's uh, you know the yeah, broadcast yeah. anchor, and he was very candid about the the dollar driving the media. Sure. And, and and it was very refreshing to see someone who is in that in the industry. And it, so for me, it's like easy because I, I get I get the privilege of talking to people like yourself and talking to Dave and talking to people because because I have a platform. But for the regular Joe who doesn't really, you know, they're just trying to make ends. They're living life, right? Yeah, it's like if the. So I'm I'm just curious, like where your where your headline because like one of the ways I've heard that we can resolve some of that is like with good quality community policing, guys on the street walking in and out of communities, talking to people, knowing their names, sure. doing those sorts of things. But that's. Yeah. So a vast majority of the time you're hearing those things from community activists or, or politicians. In the area right. that I worked, based on the census data, um, there was 47,000 people. Okay, so I can get in my car and spend all day, every day driving up and down a street and you'll never see me, right? Because you have to be in your driveway at that time um, and you just, you won't see yeah. me. Yeah, it's not um, the Bronx. We're not all right. <laughs> right. It, it just doesn't work that way. And not only that, um, a lot of officers are leaving the job. So in my area, on my side of town, there were 10 officers that would work the road. Maybe one's out sick, maybe one's in training. So you're left with eight people. Those eight people have to handle all the craziness that occurs in that jurisdiction, in that part of town. You get one car accident, and one good domestic incident, and maybe some other report, you're wiped out, okay? But there's, in Henderson, there's three areas of town. 
all three are dealing with all these little fires. And so on top of that, there's the idea of community policing. And you hear a lot of these activists say, you know, when I was a kid, the police used to get out and, and play basketball. And, yeah. and that's true. Okay. But if, if there's only eight guys in that particular geographic area, how many of them are going to actually be able to play basketball amongst the overdoses and domestics and yeah. all these other things, right? And, and if somebody's so playing basketball, somebody else is going, well, my car got stolen. Why are you out here playing basketball? And you're not <laughs> right. right. And then, then, you know, you're playing Frisbee with the kids and you fall and twist your ankle. Then the workman's comp people are like, what the hell are you doing playing yeah. Frisbee with people, you know? Yeah. Um, so, which, so, is, which lends me to like the whole idea of like defund the police is like, the absolute opposite of a good solution right it's like no we need we need 10 times more because all the solutions i hear people presenting require two to three times whatever budget you guys have to actually work with i would love to not have to go on all these calls right and um I, i could tell you that as a first responder responding to people in mental crisis 99 percent of the time we get it handled as law enforcement officers. We talk to people. We use time, distance, and all these other things. Okay, but you don't hear about those. Yeah. 99% of the time, we get it done, right? But once we sh- put them in an ambulance and we ship them off, there is no greater mental health system that's there to help them, right? Mm. Um, and so to go back to your original question, we will be able to uh, make the difference one person at a time, but you may not see that. You may not hear of that, right? So when we talk about uh, uh, accountability, Keith McCoy is his own individual. Danny King is his own individual. In modern times, I can choose what I listen to. I can choose what I believe in. And I have the ability to digitally exclude all that other stuff. So if I don't want someone else's opinion, I can I can not follow them. I can unfriend. I can do all those other things. So I'm just giving. I'm feeding myself what I want, right? And so, police drama, it sells, right? When when a, a white officer kills a black man, man, you're going to get clicks, right? It's to the point now where if I hear of an officer involved shooting. I can just assume it's going to be a, a young black man because otherwise a lot of these don't even make the news. Yeah. They may make them somewhere, but you know, you could just assume that, that it is. And so we will never be able to in, in a mass reach out to everyone in the community and tell them the, the truth about whatever it is. It just isn't going to happen. But I will tell you this. Years ago, when, uh, when there was an officer involved shooting or a serious incident, um, you, you wouldn't hear about it or they would say no comment. It's under investigation. Now those things have changed and there's a lot of complexity with that. In 2015, I recognized that in my city, we were very lucky. We had exceptionally well-trained officers. Uh, we were using body and car cameras. Um, and But it's if we have an ugly incident in the city of Henderson, that can be uploaded and be across the planet within seconds. Yeah. So you had um, 
the incident in Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana. And um, the, the name of it, forget this, escapes me. But five Dallas cops were murdered because of what happened in Baton yeah. Rouge, right? So yeah. I, I went to my chain of command and said, hey, we're very lucky in what we do. You know, uh, in the city of Henderson, when we have an incident, most people think that that the police are very well trained and they don't, there's no political pressure to do other things, but, yeah. but our day's coming. Okay. And, and we need to be prepared to answer to the citizens. And here's a couple ways of doing it. Now we used to travel the country researching and, and talking about these things. And so now every time there's an officer involved shooting in, in the city of Henderson, you see a media release where someone that's responsible will will get on video and say, this is what happened. This is what we know. This is what we were responding to. And Metro has been doing that for years, Las Vegas Metro. Las Vegas Metro can have a completely unreasonable use of force and they're still going to tell the story. Yeah. Right. Um, because they believe in accountability. And when they do that, whether people agree with it or not, Metro has said, the officer was fired or, you know, he was, he was charged or whatever the case uh, yeah. is. And then a lot of people just go, Oh, okay. okay. Right. But if you say no comment, then you're going to get what you, you got in Ferguson. You're going to get yeah. what you got in Baton Rouge. And so a lot of law enforcement recognizes uh, the leaders recognize this, these incidents are caught in 720 P man, or, or 1080. Like there's no, yeah. There's no escaping it. And it's caught from multiple angles. Um, yeah. And so, you know, with that, you have to understand these are still human beings, but saying nothing is is gonna get your city burned down. Yeah. And and we're we're not up for that. And it, the thing is that most cops understand that. Most cops get it, right? Where you're telling these people you're you're not the solution to the world's problems go out there and enforce the law appropriately, do what's in the best interest of justice. Man, I really appreciate you taking the time to walk through some of these things. I know none of us have answers and, and I certainly sure. don't. And I think the biggest thing that I've, my biggest takeaway from this conversation is, is the complexity of the things that law enforcement agencies are dealing with. And we touched on some of it. There's the politics of it. There's the community aspect of it. There's, there's the training aspect of it. There's time and experience. Sure. And it's, it's this tremendous, in my opinion, there's this really large sort of elephant in the room that is the media that's driving, you know, race and us versus them and violence and all these things that if we can all just kind of take a step back and and try to not lump everybody into the same pot which sure. i feel like we've been talking about it since you and i were in high school together yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's always been that way but do you know shit. who the number one killer of cops are no white men and uh -oh. every cop knows that every cop knows that right Every cop is going to have an interaction with tens of thousands of black men that are going to begin peacefully and end peacefully. And so 
you know, we think if you watch the media that that cops are just the racist. You know, I'll tell you a story. When I was a canine handler uh, back in 2003, four, whatever it was, I used to go to this school and I would have lunch uh, with uh, the kids. Right. It was my school that I, I sponsored and would hand out cards and just sit down and eat with them. You know, and uh, I used to eat lunch with this one kid named Max. And uh, he was just a little kid eating a sandwich with his big ears. Uh, and I would sit down and talk with him. And uh, um, when I came out of training, Max was on my squad, right? You go to my kid's school back in 2000 and, and you know, whatever year they were there, it's all these little brown kids where you don't know what they are. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and these are the people that went to school in these integrated, integrated, like it's the 60s, but these, these <laughs> classes where you yeah. have all these kids of every different race and nationality, and, and they just grew up in that, right? And so that's the bulk of, of who the squads are. Man, I've worked with um, lesbians. I've worked with transgender officers, um, Jewish officers. I mean, you name it. And, and those are the people that are on the streets every day right? Yeah. Young black men, everything. You work with all of them and you understand that it isn't an us versus them, but you do understand that when you see something, when you see a person start to become dangerous, then that's what you're seeing, right? Whether they're black or white, you're seeing. Yeah. They, every officer stops thousands of people a year for you know whatever reason. And they understand that a vast majority of those things are, are nothing. And they don't assume that they're going to be anything, right? But when they're seeing something dangerous, they don't fool themselves and act like they're not seeing something. Right. So it, there's, a, there's a tremendous difference between what, what we think if we watch the media and what actually occurs on the streets. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think there, there is. And I think for me, the the experience that I've had is that the more questions I ask and and I think the biggest one is like why right like you even said sure. like like why is this happening why is this a law why is this the new legislation why are you asking us to do this and and I think the more that we can learn to ask those questions and reserve judgment and you know recognize that yeah I may have an opinion like I may go well, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel good. That's truthful because my feelings are mine. Right. You're right. But that doesn't make it factual or accurate. It just makes it uninformed. It just it's just how I feel. And and but so I feel the thing, like Keith, when you watch George Floyd die, that is an emotional response. And and you are one hundred percent correct as a human being of going, what are you what are you doing? Right. Yeah. That act right there is is quite honestly completely unforgivable. And and I don't think you'll find any cop making excuses for that. Right? Yeah. It which is which is funny because you see plenty of people making excuses for for it through social media. Well, he was a criminal, he was this, he was that. If he would have just complied. And I think that's where the downward spiral takes off, right? Like I can have an emotional response and see that and go man, I, I can't wrap my head around how that would happen. And then when someone tells me I'm wrong for feeling that, or they try to justify the death of another human, 
because maybe he wasn't as you know a stand-up guy or whatever like for me that's where i kind of i start to kind of go sideways a little bit and i just think about like where we started you know when i was 18 19 20 years old you know i mean the military wouldn't take me because i had a record (laughs) like you know you guys you know you guys all went straight out of high school in the military it took me a couple years to figure out i didn't know what the hell i was doing maybe the military could help straighten me out i showed up at the air force recruiter's office and he said man we nowadays i'll take it seems like they'll take just about anybody but oh no they won't and no i know they won't it's just (laughs) sometimes yeah i've had some some good people that that got into some problems and called different recruiters were like no man yeah, nope, I, I already had a record. So they were like, they were like, they were like, go try the army. You might be able to get into the army. <laughs> and I, but like, if you based your judgment of, on that, or if you looked at me then, and even I thought this about myself, like, I'm not going to be anything. I'm not going to get anywhere. And, and it's just, it's not the whole person. It's just these behaviors or these things. Like even Derek Chauvin. Yeah, that scenario is probably unforgivable but he he's not defined by that one experience it's unfortunate that he will be be in the court of yeah he it's unfortunate he will be in the court of public opinion but you know he's also a father and a son and a brother and 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 that's to me is the tragic thing and it's like is it the job that put him in that position is it his own inability to manage his emotion like i don't know and it's not for me to decide um and, well, and to answer your question it, it's a mix of all those things man yeah quite honestly it is a mix of him putting himself in that position or at least not fighting back right because you deal with again the worst of the worst yeah but you can't become that right you can't become so callous when you're dealing with the worst of the worst to then transition and go to a keith mccoy's house and treat him like he's the yeah. worst of the worst. Yeah. Right. Or and becoming the know. worst. Yeah, yeah. Becoming. You can't. And I think, I think if anybody listening to this takes away anything, I would hope that it is that we don't really have the answers and that it's super complex and that a, a mean tweet or a, a lengthy Facebook post pouring your heart out about things that you really don't understand aren't helping. Right. Right. Like, but then again, I, Again, I guess I don't know the answer because, uh, you know, this is a free society and, and, and there's a lot of good things that, that comes from people's thoughts, just random thoughts. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm a huge fan of speak your heart, say what you got to say. Like, and I think that you know, I, I, and I talk about this often, none of us live in a vacuum and we all have impact. And I can look back at some of the things that I've said, or, you know, Facebook has this great little feature that pops memories up in your, yeah. in your feed. <laughs> Occasionally I was, I'll, I'll see something from eight or nine years ago that I said and be like, well, that, that was stupid. Um, and, and yeah, there's some truth in it. Like, you know, if I say something or you say something, we get into a dialogue and that creates a conversation that gets one of us to think in a better way. Yeah, there's value there. I think for me though, where I where I want to help people or I hope that people will lean into is 
not getting so wrapped up in being right or wrong or being everything being so binary. You know, there's so much gray area. There's so much complexity. It's like, yeah, have your opinion, say what you got to say, feel, feel your feels, but also be open to being wrong, be open to being, be open to, to other perspectives. You know, I mean, I could never pretend to understand what you've experienced in the last 23, 24 years. And, and we grew up in the same neighborhood and, and our lives went different directions. And, and I think that's the big thing is like everything that you've said today is a hundred percent true for you. And it's your experience and it's your story and it's things that you've navigated and anyone listening can't say that you're wrong because that's your, right. and your experience, right? Right, right? They may have a different interpretation of certain things, but yeah, I just, and I think that, Honestly, these kind of conversations, I, I would invite anybody who lives next to or knows a police officer or or knows a person of a different race or a different ethnicity or color or background or sexual orientation to like go have these types of conversations with them. Try to get to understand them. Try to get to know them a little better, because I think if we continue to do that, we'll be able to, you know, start seeing people as people and not, you know, as the labels that we keep putting on them. Right. Right. The bad guy, the good guy. And no, you're absolutely right, man. And, and it, at the end of the day, when it comes to policing, um, I've, I'm working on a website slowly amongst everything else, just called police basics. And it, it just talks about, uh, or it will talk about why do we have no knock search warrants? Why are those a thing? Right. Um, one of the things that you see over and over again is um, an officer telling someone to get out of the car. And a person goes, well, what do I have to get out of the car? for?" The law in the United States is when a police officer tells you to get out of the car, you have to get out of the car. And you may not understand it, but that's what the law says, right? And that officer may be seeing something that you're not seeing. He may be wrong, okay, but he may be right. And when he says, get out of the car, you have to get out of the car. But when you refuse to get out of the car, that officer has some decisions to make, right? And again, you may be completely innocent. You may be completely wrong, but this is what the law says. So when you hear on the video, the guy's saying, the officer says, step out. That person is legally required to step out. Oh, well, I'm not stepping. You, you can't make me step out. Law says I don't have to. No, that's not what the law says. And so yeah. if you explain those to people, um, then at least they have an understanding. You can film a police officer. Yeah. You should film a police officer. And, and most cops have zero problems with that. There are some logistics and there are some issues of, of you reaching in pockets and things like that. Yeah, yeah um, of course. But, but most police officers have no problem with you filming, right? So if you think things are going upside down, you have your camera handy or your phone, man, turn it on. If, if a cop understands that that's a phone, he can't stop you from recording it. Now, you may not be able to put it in, in his face. You may have to set it down at times, okay, but, but record it. And, and, and if a cop has a problem with that, and there's videos out there of cops having a problem with it, yeah. turn that off, stop recording, th- then that's the guy that you want to record. Yeah. Because if a cop doesn't understand that you can't record him, that cop is wrong, right? And, and most cops don't have a problem with those things. So yeah. eventually, you know, who knows when I'll get that done. And as an incident pops up in the country, 
we'll just kind of go over it and go, hey, man, there's there's more to the story here. Yeah. And, and not make judgments as to whether it's right or wrong. Just there's more to the story. Yeah, I love it. I love it, man. I appreciate you taking the time today. This has been a really a fascinating conversation. And who knows, maybe something will happen or when you get your website up or as as <laughs> things happen, maybe we'll jump back in and we can unpack some of the some of the yeah, things man. that you're you're dealing with. It's Let's been awesome. It. Cool. Take care of yourself, man. Yeah. You do the same. Hug the family. Tell them I said hello. <laughs> <laughs>